Welcome to Kevin Connor's podcast. This 24-part series on interpreting the book of Revelation was given at Tungling Bible College in Singapore back in 2002. Be sure to get a copy of the textbook by the same title, available from Amazon in your region in paperback and ebook formats, or as an immediate PDF download from the shop at kevinconnor.org. Presence this morning in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do thank you, Lord, that we have access into your presence anytime, any place, anywhere. And Lord, that we can approach you not in our own righteousness, uh, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and through his precious blood. And that you see us through the blood of Jesus this morning. Now, fathers, we come to this uh, last day of our sessions. And we do pray that the Holy Spirit will quicken us. Uh, quicken us uh, spiritually and mentally, emotionally, physically, just in our total being, Father, just to receive uh, just as much as we can of uh, all the areas we're covering. Bless your word to our hearts, Father. We thank you for it in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. I, uh, I really do uh, uh, want to thank Hong Singh for inviting me to the concentration camp here. <laughs> and the great tribulation that we've been all been through together. And uh, I, I, I really, this is almost apart from uh, any human here, I want to commend uh, Brother Hong Singh. How many appreciate him? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I love to. Now he's married. Yeah, I'll tell you why. I, I, uh, Neil and I, we do a lot of seminars together in different places and that. But for me, uh, to see Hong Sing, well, I'm taking notes. You know, they've heard this before, been there, done that, but taking notes again, everything like that. I can't read a thing he writes. He writes in tongues. But I've been to seminars, and it's a sad thing to say where some of the BTOs, the big time operators, they're too big to come in from singing and worship. Well, they're too big to take notes. You know, they've got to do that. And so I'll slip out. I never listen to anybody else. And I think that's just very egotistical and just pride. But uh, for men like this to sit here and listen to me and just take notes, I, I want to really commend you. I mean, I, I mean that because not too many do that. And uh, both of you, the rest of you had to. <laughs> okay, so uh, turn to page 15 this morning. And uh, what we're going to do, we're coming in for our landing here, we've got four sessions. And so uh, we've got Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22, and then just sort of a wrap up on our time together. Really appreciate uh, sharing with you. Okay, so we're going to go to page 15, and what we want to cover this morning is uh, uh, number three. Oh, well, yes, uh, let's see. Uh, the parenthet gong, hallelujah chorus, marriage of the Lamb, just a uh, couple of thoughts there, and then move on to uh, Armageddon, kings and all nations, and then actually, actually the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now let's just pick up the uh, loose ends from yesterday and see where we are. Uh, so just reminding ourselves now, what we've done is just uh, always so many loose ends to uh, sort of pick up here. So what we've been basically covering, as we said, uh, you know, the, the sevenfold approach to the book of Revelation, is 
The uh, first six areas have been safe areas. Uh, number seven has been the eschatological area, which is the most controversial in the different expositors. So what we've been following here is three and one half years of tribulation reigned in the Antichrist. And we found that the key to these chapters, Revelation 11, right through to chapter 18, is basically the time element, three and a half years, uh, not seven years. Uh, three and a half years, and it's mentioned in uh, Revelation 11, three and a half years of the two witnesses' ministry, three and a half years, Revelation 12, uh, the preservation of the true church, Revelation 13, the reign of the Antichrist, the one world government, the false prophet, image worship, uh, mark of the beast, and all that. Time element gives us the key. And then the second master key for these chapters is that the first mention of the beast is found in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7, where the beast... Uh, overcome to two witnesses at the close of their ministry. And then we see right through the word beast, this wild, rapacious beast is used about 37 times altogether, right through to Revelation chapter 19. So those two things, the time element, which puts it at the end of the age, and the beast, which is used some 37 times, as I said, is used in all these chapters right through to Revelation uh, chapter 17, 18, and then finally chapter 19 and 20. So we've just been dealing with events that uh, we believe take place in the period of the Great Tribulation as referred to, and the Judgment. So two witnesses witnessing in Jerusalem, uh, the, church, the true church uh, preserved, the reign of the Antichrist, false prophet, then the balls of wrath. And we looked at the world conditions yesterday, and why does a God of love and compassion and mercy pour out such uh, balls of wrath? And we've seen that because of the world condition, and uh, finally they repented not, they repented not, and blaspheming the God of heaven. Then we looked at the seven bowls of wrath that were being poured out, touching uh, the whole world, and then the judgment, Revelation 17, on the, uh, the false church, the woman Babylon, uh, because of that, uh, uh, the ecclesiastical thing, and then Revelation chapter 17, the city Babylon. So all the judgments of God taking place uh, in this period of time, at the beginning, or during, and at the end. Now we want to go to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, great tribulation is over. Hallelujah. And Jesus is coming again. That's what, uh, what we're looking at now. All right, now, by way of introduction here, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. chapter 19. Now on your notes there, I'll just put uh, a few brief uh, verses there and just a couple of thoughts I'd like to have there, but I want to go more to the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, in verses 1 through to 7 we have, uh, you'll notice this connection with Revelation chapter 17 because it says that after these things, what? After these things, after the three and a half years, after the judgment of the great whore and so forth, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, honor, and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great poor. So it takes you back to Revelation 17, where the great harlot church is being judged, uh, which did corrupt the earth with her fornications, and hath avenged the blood of her servants and hands. So that 
very expression there, judge the great whore, links you up with uh, Revelation uh, uh, 17, the judgment of the great harlot church. So here in contrast to the great harlot church, we have the uh, bride of Christ. And so, hallelujah, amen, praise to our God. And then in verse 7, uh, let's be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. The emphasis is on the bridegroom, not the bride, for the uh, wife, his wife. Uh, the church has made herself ready. And then her garments for the wedding uh, are found in verse 8, that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness. And uh, some of the translations say the righteous acts or the righteousnesses, plural, the righteous acts of the saints. And then verse 9, blessed are they that to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, in verse 10, you'll notice we have the mysterious messenger. Uh, that John falls at his feet to us and don't worship me. I'm your fellow servant. I'm like your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus and worship God. So just very briefly on verses 1 through to 10 here, it's just the contrast uh, of the marriage of the Lamb to his wife, the church, in contrast to the harlot church that's being judged in 17. So that's all we can uh, just touch on that bit. Now I want to go to the actual second coming. And from uh, verse 11 right through to 21, we actually have the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with all the different views that I've read, whether it's uh, uh, pre-mill, post-mill, uh, mid-mill, uh, pan-mill, wind-mill, uh, all the different millennial views I've read, they all, as far as I know, they all agree that Revelation chapter 19 is the actual second coming of the Lord. So we can just look at three and a half years, uh, and all the events are finished here, and now we have the actual coming of the Lord. Now, but, uh, just before I introduce something here, uh, what, what, what's very difficult for us, because we're not God, how many have found that out? <laughs> I know some people think they are God, but one of the most difficult things for us, and one of the difficult things for me that I've had to sort of try and uh, study over the, uh, over the years is, there are so many events that take place at the second coming of the Lord. And uh, let, let's illustrate it this way. In the, in the Old Testament, we have uh, numerous prophecies concerning the first coming. So let's put it this way. You know, uh, in Genesis 3.15, he would be the seed of woman. In Genesis 49, uh, he'd be the line of the tribe of Judah. And uh, right through the Old Testament, Moses said, a prophet, the Lord will raise up to you. We have all these prophecies of the Old Testament. And uh, Isaiah says he'll come, he'll be born of a virgin. And then uh, Micah says he would come out of Bethlehem. And we have all these numerous prophecies concerning the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the problem was, uh, for them, as it is for us, the problem they had was this that uh, in, in, in these prophecies concerning particularly the first coming, and there, there are several hundred of them given over uh, you know, several thousand years here, what the interpreters of the word, the hermeneuticians, couldn't work out is, how can we work this all out? He's supposed to come from Nazareth. No, he's supposed to come out of Bethlehem. No, he's supposed to be uh, out of Egypt have I called my son. Uh, no, no, he's to be born of a virgin. No, no, he's to be of David. And there were so many prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, they could not arrange them, listen carefully to the words I'm saying, uh, the Old Testament prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ were all in unchronological order. 
And so the, what the, the, the hermeneuticians of those days described, the lawyers who were the official interpreters of the word, what they had the trouble was, how do we arrange in chronological order all the unchronological prophecies concerning the first coming of the, or the coming of the Messiah? Everybody hear what I'm saying there? So they had all these prophecies, like parts of the Jesus. Oh, well, one would say, no, he's to come out of Bethlehem. No, no, but Isaiah said he's going to be born of a virgin. No, 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 someone else says he's to, well, you know, I'm just totally confused about all these. So, so in the Old Testament, all the prophecies concerning the Christ, uh, coming, first coming of Christ, were unchronological. Now, what was the key? When Jesus came, so he's born here, Born in Bethlehem, uh, then we have the 30 silent years, and then we have the uh, three and a half years of his ministry. Now, what Jesus did, Jesus arranged, but Jesus arranged the unchronological prophecies of the Old Testament concerning his first coming. He arranged them in chronological order by historical fulfillment. Everybody say that after me. <laughs> uh, let me say it again. I know you're thinking hard for this uh, hour of the morning. So all these unchronological prophecies concerning his first coming, Jesus arranged them in chronological order by historical fulfillment. So he was born in Bethlehem. Oh, that fulfills Micah. Out of Egypt have I called my son. When Herod went down to uh, kill all the infants. Oh, that fulfills Hosea chapter 10 verse 1. What did it? Ah, oh, and then he was brought up in Nazareth. Oh, that fulfills Isaiah chapter 9, uh, whatever. Ah, uh, and then, and so, oh, uh, he came to the river Jordan. Uh, John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. Oh, that, that, that's Isaiah chapter 40, a voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, the blind, eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and so forth. Oh, that's Isaiah chapter 35. How many hear what I'm saying? Yes. So, all these Old Testament unchronological uh Prophecies of his first coming in unchronological order, they were, were arranged in chronological order by historical fulfillment. Jesus did that. Now, I said all that to say this. We are in the same dilemma, and that's why we have so many uh, different views on eschatology. In the New Testament, we've had the first coming, and now in the New Testament, we have so many prophecies. Oh, Jesus is going to come in the clouds. Oh, he's going to come as a thief or not. No, he's going to come with a trumpet. Oh, noisy thief. I'm a thief. <laughs> and I'm going to say, boy, you're a noisy thief. You're announcing coming when you're coming to Robert. <laughs> right? Oh, no, he's going to come with uh, angels. No, no, he's going to come uh, in flaming fire. No, he's going to come secretly. He's going to rapture to the church. Uh, look, I'm just confused. Well, write your books. <laughs> so... So we are in the same problem because, generally speaking, we have, a, uh, I think there's over 318 prophecies in the New Testament concerning the second coming of Christ. So here we are, New Testament believers, and we're looking forward to the second coming. You're allowed to say amen? Amen. amen. Hello, me. And we've got all these prophecies about his coming. So they were not arranged in chronological order. If only Paul... Or John would say, now, this is the order and sequence of events. But he, they didn't do that. They said, come to Tumbling Bible College and Kevin Connor will help you with <laughs> <laughs> A wee little bit. And if he can't convince you, he'll confuse you. <laughs> 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 you 
you see me in the altar room afterwards. Okay, uh, so second coming. So what our difficulty is, is to sort of try and arrange in a chronological order the events pertaining to his second coming. That's what we're talking about. And so this morning, I'm going to make a, a wee little attempt of that and uh, encourage you to take it down, look at it, consider it, and so forth. But the thing is, again, here we have final three and a half years. And when you see the pattern, three and a half years there, three and a half years here. And so then his second coming here. So what I want to do in a moment is uh, give you 10 major events because we've got so many prophecies and things that were to take place in his second coming. So I want to sort them, uh, sort of try and put them in a reasonable chronological order, but don't, you know, don't kill me uh, if it's not quite in the order that you've got. It's not my fault if I'm right again, is it, okay? <laughs> all right. So, but that's the main thing I want you to get across. These, all, uh, the, 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 the prophecies concerning his first coming in the Old Testament were unchronological, they were not set in chronological order. When Jesus came the first time, he arranged in chronological order by historical fulfillment all the unchronological prophecies of his first coming in the Old Testament. Now, ditto repeato for the New Testament. When Jesus comes, regardless of what Kevin Connor believes, windmill, pre-mill, post-mill, pan-mill, windmill, regardless, when Jesus comes, he's going to arrange in chronological order by historical fulfillment all the unchronological prophecies concerning his second coming. How many, how many think that's a real good point? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. A bit louder. <laughs> All right, so that's that's why so many views on eschatology because we're trying to say, oh well, the, this scripture says it's going to come in. No, no, this scripture says it's going to come. How do I arrange it in order? So I'm going to attempt to do that in a little while. <clears throat> okay, now let's. Uh... Let's go to the actual coming of the Lord, and then uh, I'll do the second coming events uh, in a moment. Here is an outline that uh, I use from, uh, basically, from a brother who's going to be with the Lord, W.W. W. Patterson, not the Patterson we have here. <laughs> All right, so uh, this 13-fold uh, outline. Okay, uh, so just a brief outline to set the fuller details that have been dealt with in the text. Alright, so number one here, when Jesus comes as we see in Revelation 19, he comes on riding on a white horse. So riding on a white horse, I saw heaven opened. So think of the whole thought now here. Remember what we finished off with yesterday. Once heaven is open and Jesus leaves, what is he doing? He's like, as we said, like Michael. Once Michael stands up, once Jesus stands up from the mercy seat, see he's seated at the moment, as long as Jesus is seated, uh, mercy is available, the door of salvation is still open. But once Jesus stands up from the mercy seat, I see Jesus standing, no more mercy. The day of salvation is over. There's no second chance. That's what we've got to realize the significance here. So heaven is open and a white horse so uh, his mouth, he rides on a white horse, and it compares very much with the, uh, uh, the, the first seal, the rider on the white horse there. So it is a militant picture of Christ presented here. 
Now, in the first coming, interestingly, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Donkey more the symbol of peace. But now he's riding the second coming into Jerusalem on a white horse. So judgment. That's the picture, symbol of war. Now white, as we've seen all the way through the book of Revelation, every, every use of the word white, always the color of holiness and purity and righteousness and light. So same symbol uh, used uh, in Revelation chapter 6. So white horse. And uh, uh, as we'll see later on, his name is called the Word of God. And so here we have, uh, as we said earlier in the piece on the four horses, a horse is always the symbol of the Spirit. And, and, and the rider is the Word. So he's the Spirit upholding supporting the word yet the word governs the spirit the spirit will never contradict the word and so the the horse and the rider the horse representing the spirit uh, uh the mount here and uh supporting the word and yet the word governs the spirit because the word and the spirit work together never contradict each other and so he's uh he's mount the white horse All right number two his character you'll notice the language used about his character it said he who sat on him is called faithful and true. Now you notice, even though uh, I mean, basically everybody agrees that this is coming, Lord. Uh, the personal name Jesus is never used once in this coming. Yet everybody admits it's Jesus. Okay, so the the character here is uh, righteousness. Uh, I'm sorry, faithful and true. He's always dependable, reliable, trustworthy. That's the thought faithfulness and he's true. He is true in all he says, all he is, and all he does. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's not, no shade of falsehood to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his character. Then number three, uh, his work. What is his work? This, this is a holy war. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So that's his work. Uh, he came in peace the first time, and when he said to Jerusalem, when he wept over Jerusalem, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, if only you'd know the things that belong to your peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. So Jerusalem, the city of peace, rejected the king of peace and crucified the king of peace and said, we have no king but Caesar. Now he comes not in peace, he comes in war. This is truly a holy war because he's the holy one. So, uh, not like the wars of mankind, of nation against nation. Uh, this is the, uh, really the battle of Armageddon, as we said. When that happens, Armageddon out of it. So, uh, his work is in righteousness, he makes war. Number, number four, his eyes. And this is very similar to, maybe just put down the scripture, Revelation 1.14. Revelation 1.14. Uh, his eyes are as a flame of fire. Just like we saw in Revelation chapter 1, where, where it's the revelation of Jesus Christ as the great high priest judge. And his eyes are as a flame of fire, searching, penetrating. But here it's fiery indignation against sin and sinners who refuse to repent of their sins. And so, no deceiving him. It's talk about flames. The, the, the light comes from within piercing, searching, so his eyes like a flame of fire. Number ten, uh, uh, sorry, number five, number five, his head, in contrast to his head on the cross where he was crowned with thorns, here on his head were many crowns. 
And it's different here. The Greek word for crown here is diadem. <coughs> Crowning with many crowns. The lamb upon the throne. It's not Stephanus. Stephanus was like the, the laurel wreath made out of uh, leaves and that uh, garland of victory that people uh, won in the Olympic Games. But this is not Stephanus, that type of crown. This is a diadem. It is no longer the crown of thorns placed by, there by man at Calvary, but the crowns of a mighty king, because he's king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, the, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6, the first seal, had a crown, but it was Stephanos. But here it's not Stephanos, it's Diadem. Uh, number, number six, his name. And uh, this one we don't know because it says, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. So this name that's on Jesus here is a mystery, it's a secret. And it's a name that nobody knows. In fact, one translation says, a name inscribed that he alone knows and understands. Uh, why don't you put down Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27, 33. And often, often the name stood for the person. And in, the, in this peculiar prophecy in Isaiah 30, it says, Behold, the name of the Lord uh, uh, comes from far, burning with anger. But how can the name come? Because the name represents the person. So here, the name of the Lord comes from far, the Lord is coming. So there's some name here. And remember Jesus... Uh, to the overcomer churches in Revelation 3.17. He says he'll give them a, a name uh, that the overcomer would know. So uh, this name, the secret name, in number six you might like to put that down. It's a secret name, it's a mystery that only he himself knows. Number seven, his clothing. In contrast to the garments of glory and beauty, and you see, we have to think, you know, so many things that when, when the high priest uh, uh, in Old Testament times went into the most holy place, he had to change his robes. He was clothed in white linen. But when he came to minister in the holy place, uh, the, that was the most holy place, in the holy place, he changed his garments again to the garments of glory and beauty with a breastplate, 12 stones and everything like that. Then you see later on, in Isaiah chapter 61 and 63, where the question is, why are you red in your garment? Because Jesus has changed his garments from being a high priest judge. Now he's coming in the garments of vengeance, which he says, coming in the garments of vengeance. So his garments here, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now we've seen the connection, or we hopefully we see the connection. In Isaiah, put down Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1 to 6. The day of his coming is a day of vengeance, and his clothing is a vesture dipped in blood. So, in, uh, in the previous chapters in Revelation, we see how in the harvest time, the grapes were thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. And then uh, in the prophecy in Isaiah, it says, I will stain all my garments with blood. And so it's the figure of, uh, of those treading up the grapes, treading up the blood of the grapes. And so the, the wicked, in that harvest of the wicked, as we saw yesterday, were cast into the winepress of the wrath of God, and he treads the winepress on him, treading underfoot. 
the, uh, the enemies, those who have rejected him. So his robe is dipped in blood. So just as the garments of those who trod out the grapes were stained with the blood of the grapes, that's the picture that we have here, because it's time for judgment. When he came the first time, his garments were dipped in myrrh, aloes and cassia, according to the psalm, 45, he came out of the ivory palaces, but now he comes a second time, he's coming in judgment, his robe is dipped in blood. <coughs> Number eight is a very uh, significant thing. You'll notice there's, uh, the, there's three connections of the name here. In number six, we have the secret name. He has on his, himself a name that nobody knows but he himself. So his secret name. Uh, number eight here, his eternal name. And then later on, uh, number 13, his majestic name. So we have his secret name, his eternal name, his majestic name. Okay, number eight, let me explain what I mean by that. We're told in... Uh, uh, which verse here, that his name is called the Word of God. Now that's a very significant thing. This is his eternal name. See, before, before Jesus became incarnate, his eternal name was the Word. So in the beginning, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the word was made flesh. Somebody has put it this way. It's not a picture with me, but he puts it very well. Theologically, in the beginning was the word. That's uh, 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 eternity of being. And the word was with God. That is plurality of being. God and the word. Uh, he, uh, in the, uh, and the word was God. That's co-equality of being. And the word was made flesh. That's humility of being. That's just good sound theology. So in eternity, he was known as the Word. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Then when the Word was made flesh, what was the name of the Word's humanity? You should call his name Jesus. See, Jesus is the name of the Son's humanity. Jesus is his own personal name, his human name. So when the Word was made flesh, the word's personal human name is Jesus, meaning Savior. I think that's worth a little baby hallelujah, don't you? So, but now, we've come from eternity, now we're coming from eternity. So when he comes this time, he's not coming as Jesus' Savior. He's coming as the Word in judgment, the sword of the Word. That's the picture. That, so that's his eternal name. Reverts to his eternal name. Maybe you'd like to put down a couple of scriptures there. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And without the Word, nothing was made. So we have eternity of being, co-equality of being, pre-existence of being, humility of being. So John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, verses 14 to 18. Verse 14 to 18. And then uh, 1 John, that's little John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And then one other reference here, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. So Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. All right, so compare that with what we're looking at, his eternal name. All right, number, number 9 now, we have his followers. So his followers. The followers, we're told, are the armies of heaven and the armies in heaven. So remember, this is a true holy war. Not likely wars on earth. This is a holy war. So the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So you better get 
riding a horse, better learn to ride horses. Because we're, <laughs> and, and we know this is symbolic language, you know, I mean, but because a, a horse always is symbolic of, a, of the spirit, the power of the spirit. So when, uh, when Elijah was raptured to heaven, uh, what did Elisha say? Oh, my father, the horses and the chariots thereof. So the horses and chariots came swooping down from heaven, divine, supernatural transport. That's what's symbolic of. And just took Elijah to heaven and Elisha saw it. Oh, my father, the horses and the chariots thereof. So always symbolic. So uh, the armies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you'd like to put A and B on this. When we go through all the scriptures that I've done in my little fanaticism here, the armies seem to involve two companies here. First of all, uh, the, the, the saints of God are spoken of as the armies of the Lord. Many, many scriptures because when Jesus comes, just put down Jude 14 and 15. Jude 14 and 15. And Revelation 17 and 14. So Jude 14 and 15. Uh, Revelation 17, 14, many, many scriptures show that when Jesus comes back, he comes uh, with his saints. So the saints riding on horses, the saints in heaven, the saints. So part of the armies of the Lord that are following him, his followers, the Lord Jesus Christ and, and his, uh, his people. And then number two, uh, letter B, the next bunch of scriptures that we have, a group of scriptures, is we're told that Jesus also comes with the angels. So saints and angels so he comes in flaming fire with angels so the angels are also spoken of as the army of the lord put down a couple of scriptures that speak of the angels coming so as i said there's so many uh scriptures concerning events concerning his coming which we'll uh, give some order later on uh here so he comes with the saints yet he comes with angels two or three scriptures on that matthew 24 matthew 24 and verse 31 So uh, when the Son of Man comes, he'll come with his mighty angels. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter one and verse seven. Second Thessalonians chapter one verse seven. And then uh, one from Daniel. Daniel chapter four thirty-five. Daniel four verse thirty-five. There's many other scriptures there, but uh, as I've looked at all the different scriptures, when Jesus comes, he comes with the saints riding on white horses, and then the angels accompany him also. So the armies of God. And uh, uh, may, you may remember the, the account where Elisha, uh, was in a, there was a battle of Israel against the Syrians, and the young man that was with Elisha he was so full of fear, and he said, look at all those multitude out there. And Elisha prayed, Lord, open the young man's eyes. And when the Lord opened his eyes, he saw all the armies of heaven standing with Elisha, and Elisha was over to say the young man, they're more with us than are with them. So if our eyes were open, we see the armies of the Lord. Uh, Jesus comes forth conquering and to conquer. All right, so angels and saints are both said to be clothed in fine linen. Remember we said colored white is never used of the devil or the bad guys. White is always used of God, Christ, the angels, the saints. Never once in the total Bible is it used of the bad guys. All right, so uh, his followers. Number 10, his mouth. And what are we told about his mouth? Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Put down Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 because we see the same sword there out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. Now back there, Revelation 1 18, the sword is dealing with sin in the church. 
So the churches have to be cleansed. So the same sword, cut off the yes, what do you have? Okay, the sword of the word. The word of the, the sword is the word. The word is the sword. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so it's the same sword now here, but it's going to judge the world and judge the nations of the earth. Uh, and you know, there's power in the word of Jesus. And see, uh, you know, uh, there's this delicate thing. We think, okay, when Christ comes, okay, Antichrist and his army is going to be gathered together against Christ and his army, which is true. But Jesus is not going to come down and have a little fisty cuff and knock the Antichrist in the nose and punch off the false prophet. It's not, there's not going to be a flesh and blood thing. It will be flesh and blood as far as man is concerned. But you see, Jesus just has to speak the word. And when, uh, you know, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus just quietly said, user-friendly, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And what happened? There was so much power in that I am, the name of the burning bush, that they fell backwards. Now, you and I could say I am all day. Nobody <laughs> says it, there's power. So they just fell backwards. Because it was the I am of the burning bush that name. So when Jesus comes a second time, it's not going to be a flesh and blood fight. Jesus is just going to speak the word. It's the sword of his mouth. The word that strikes the wicked. Everybody said amen? amen. Okay, so out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. So the sword of the word. <clears throat> Uh, put down a couple of scriptures here. Psalm 45 and verse 3. Psalm 45 verse 3. And Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. So Isaiah 11 verse 4, Psalm 45 verse 3. Alright, number 11. Next thing we note here is his hand. And you know, as I said, it's so hard for us, you know, with our finite minds and limited minds, just to sort of bring these things together. But... Uh, you know, Thomas said, show me your hands, except I see the nail prints in your hands. So uh, those same hands that were nailed on the cross, those same hands that healed the sick and raised the dead, those same hands uh, here, it's different. He, he, he had in his hand uh, a rod. He himself will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Iron is unbreakable rule. Rod, so breaking. And uh, you'll notice that... Uh, uh, this promise is given to the overcomer. Put down Revelation chapter 2 and verse 27. To him that overcomes, I'll give him power to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. So the unbreakable, inflexible rule. So Revelation 2.27. It's also, so the promise to rule with a rod of iron is given to overcomers. It's not just concerning Christ. It's to the overcomers. And then in Psalm 2, we have the same thing. He will rule the, the nations with a rod of iron rule thou in the midst of your enemies. So Psalm 2. And uh, so we've got that whole picture. So it's like the shepherds, right? In fact, where it says he will rule the nations, uh, sometimes we think, oh, you've got a rod of iron, he's just going to smash everybody to bits. Uh, the word rule simply means to shepherdize. He will tend them as a shepherd. Not going to come to death, but the iron is what? It's an unbreakable rule. That's it. But he will shepherdize them, that's all. It's the same thing that's said of elders, that the elders that rule in the church, word rule, uh, in various places means to shepherdize, to tend like a shepherd. 
So it subjugates the wicked, yet he shepherdizes here. Uh, remember Moses had a rod, the shepherd's rod. And with that shepherd's rod, he did signs and wonders and brought Israel out of Egypt. So ruling, tempting the nations like a shepherd. All right, number 12, his feet. And again, as I said, bringing all these loose ends together. Those same feet that had nail prints in them, uh, yet those same feet now tread out the wicked. Listen to what it says here. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So his feet treading the winepress. So those feet that walked through Jerusalem, those feet that were nailed to the cross, those feet at which John fell, those feet at which Mary fell, those feet that were anointed, those same feet now, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Why don't we go over to Isaiah uh, uh, for a moment here. Isaiah chapter Isaiah ch chapter 61 and 63. <coughs> All right, we had uh, occasion to allude to this uh, on uh, some other session. Uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. And then we'll go to Isaiah chapter 63. So his feet treading in the winepress. All right, in Isaiah chapter 61, passage we're very familiar with. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord goes upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the uh, broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, just reminding you, we've seen that when Jesus went into the synagogue, uh, there was given to him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So he opened the book, he opened the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61. And as he read in the synagogue, we can remember back here, he read to the middle of two, proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, but he stopped right in the verse, in the middle of the verse. He did not read the day of vengeance because in this first half of the week, he opened the book, read to the middle of the verse, and this sixfold ministry of Jesus that we saw the other day in the Gospel of Luke. But now he has opened the book again, and it's like, as it were, he's continuing to read on day of vengeance of our God. There was no vengeance in his heart the first coming. There is in the second coming. Go over to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63, and pick up in verse 1. Who is this? Uh, the prophet's asking questions. Who is this that comes from Edom, which means red, uh, with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to say. Question. Wherefore, why are you red in your apparel? So his clothing, uh, red, dipped in the winepress. Uh, wherefore are you red in your apparel and your garments like him that treads in the wine fat? And the answer of Jesus is, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, trample them in my fury. We have to keep in mind what we've been going through yesterday, that the world is worshipping Antichrist, they've taken the mark of the beast, the unpardonable sin, the world's given over to blasphemy, they repented not, they repented not. That's the condition. So Jesus comes back, the time of salvation's over. Uh, I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. Why? For the day of vengeance is in my heart. That's for the wicked. 
and the year of my redeem is come, that's for the righteous. So the second coming is vengeance on the wicked and redemption for the righteous fully. So the day of vengeance and the year of my redeem. That's the picture that we have. All right, so his feet like him that treads in the winepress. Okay, uh, number 13 here. His majestic name. Now listen to the majestic name. See his secret name that only he himself knows. Nobody knows his eternal name, the word, but now his majestic name. And we're told, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's his majestic name, King of Kings. We think of the ten kings on the earth and even us as believers. I'm looking at a bunch of kings and queens this morning. You're looking at King Connor. <laughs> you don't quite believe that, do you? It says, He has made us unto our God kings and priests. Are you a priest this morning? Yes. Well, are you a king? Yes. There's much teaching, well, a certain amount of teaching on the priestly ministry of the believer, but have you had any teaching on the kingly ministry and role of the believer? So I'm a king priest. You're looking at King Connor this morning. And Father Connor. No, no, no. <laughs> priest Connor. Uh, the price of low living has gone up. <laughs> Alright, so his majestic name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Reading off the notes here. Usually the sword is on the thigh and the name is in the mouth. But he was just the opposite. The sword is in the mouth and the name is on the thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is uh, Order of Melchizedek. That's the picture that we have. And so uh, let's go to Revelation 19 just uh, before we take a break. And then after we want to pick up uh, some of these uh, order of events here. Turn back to Revelation 19. Wow, doesn't the time fly? How many are glad it's flying? <laughs> Um, uh, Revelation 19. Alright, if you go down to uh, verse 17, amazing language here. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that uh, fly in the midst of heaven, heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Church has the Lord's Supper. This is the supper of the great God. And you'll notice, depending on your translation, of course, the word flesh is used five times in verse 18. Eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and, the, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men. Man is flesh, he lives in the flesh, he lives after the flesh, they're going to feed on flesh. 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, and I, I, know, I know this is sanctified imagination, but we have to think what is going on in the world because somewhere, why is it that the Antichrist and the kings of the earth are all gathered at Jerusalem, against Jerusalem, somehow they've got into their mentality, our modern day language, there's coming an invasion from another planet. These two witnesses here, their bodies are lying still in the streets of Jerusalem, dead. But they're talking about some Messiah coming from another planet and he's going to come with armies in judgment. So it looks like, this is what we've been preparing you for years on Star Wars. 
and Wonder Woman and Spider-Man and Superman, Tarzan. <laughs> King Kong. In Hong Kong. The world's mentality is prepared for these things. Is there life on other planets? So, why do they get? Because they're gathered there together against Christ and the armies of heaven. And to them, it's going to be invasion from another planet. Planet Earth is being attacked. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books and his ministry.